we've been um, talking about some of the steps in this progressive practice. And um, I want to talk about the principle of progression itself, um, including some of these steps that we've been discussing, but some of the other ones and seeing how similar they all are and what progress really is and how it works and so on. One of the ways that we teach and we learn is that as we continue with practice and it progresses, we experience each ourselves what we call fruits of practice, results, beneficial understandings which help us, the fruits of practice. And the practices that we do are kind of mimicking those fruits. We're pretending. So the instructions that we follow and the guidance that the Buddha gave are all the same. Whatever the the template or whatever the detail, it's all so much one thing, and it's the progression from struggling to freedom from struggling, of course. So one thing to bear in mind, and having spoken to, of course, numbers of you ongoingly, um, as we do explain things, the various teachings that we've understood in our various ways, you know that the teachings and the instructions are the same for everybody. It's regardless of where you are, regardless of what you do or you don't experience, what you do or you do or don't already know, it's always the same instructions and they mean the same things. It's not like later, for, you know, you'll get that bit later or you already know that bit so now you don't have to listen. It's just that the, the experience of these words and these descriptions becomes increasingly deep, increasingly understood, increasingly subtle, but doesn't change. So you can always be listening endlessly. It's always appropriate. What's amazing to me is that we can keep on talking over and over and over and saying the same things, (laughs) pretending that we're saying different things with different titles. The uh, progressive aspect of practice. One way of seeing this, and in a way that we actually can practice, is the shifting, the progression from the doer to the beer, from doing to being, from trying to resting. And one of the templates which I love and have clearly available to me as a reference frequently um, are uh, the seven factors of awakening, which I'll use initially in this description. And John began introducing them last, last night, um, factors or aspects of our experience, because they are a progressive teaching, as numbers of them are. There are seven, just to remind you, those of you who aren't can remember this. The name is Bojanga. B-O-J-J-H-A-N-G-A. The Boj part is actually 
a variation on bod, B-O-D-H, which is the same thing as Buddha, the same thing as the Bodhi tree, the same thing as the Bodhisattva. That's about awake, awake, enlightened. Anga, A-N-G-A, is factors or uh, contributing parts, limbs. So the, the factors which contribute to awakening, Bojanga, seven of them, progressive. They are, to begin with, sati, mindfulness, what we're practicing. And then there are three which are um, related in their, in this, this talk I'm giving about the progression of uh, active doing to passive being. So there are three on the active doing side which follow one along from the other. And the first is interest or um, curiosity. The W of slow, S-L-O-W, that curiosity, the wonder. Dhamma vachaya means investigating the dhammas. just means wonder. Sounds very different than investigating the dhyas, dhammas. It's that uh, exploring, curious, what's really happening which leads, in its own way, to a a sense of energizing, a sense of enthusiasm, virya, many translations, courage, willingness. I love enthusiasm. It's often translated as effort, but effort without heart is plain old drudgery and grimness. We've been talking about that, it seems, a fair bit. But with heart, it's uh, enthusiasm, energy, application, which progresses in its time to joy, PT, rapture, which you've heard us talk lots and lots about. Those are the three energizing factors, which lead in their own way, which is the part that most interests me, to the fifth one, which is pasadi. Pasadi is serenity. And pasadi, which I'll explore more with us tonight, leads in its own way, matures to a concentration samadhi or collectedness, that loaf of bread that's not yet baked, that dough, which itself matures into equanimity, very vast, stable, unperturbable, non-reactive wisdom. These mature onwards in that way. And you can see, if you've any memory, which you may or you may not have much memory at this stage of your retreat, to the list that we were describing of these 12 factors of of, um, transcendent origination. (coughs) Which are, I need to look at the paper because I don't remember them either, suffering which leads to faith, which brings delight, that same delight, piti, and joy, which leads to tranquility, that same serenity that I just said, which leads to sweetness, which I'll talk about, which leads to concentration of samadhi, the same progression. So these seven factors are like seven of the twelve of that same progression. For your information, but I won't go into it, There's another list which progresses similarly. It's the five spiritual faculties, just so that you see that it's all the same teaching. Faith, when we have faith, then we have virya, energy, 
and we have energy, we have mindfulness, clarity, see what's happening, which stabilizes into concentration, which matures into understanding wisdom. It's the same progression. The doing, the understanding, and then that peaceful being. So these three in the middle, virya, joy, serenity, are particularly where joy moves to serenity. As John was describing last night, the three energizing factors, the interest, the the energy, and the joy that bring the energy up are like on one side of a balance, as he was talking about. I see it exactly the same way in my mind, a seesaw. And then the three others, the the tranquility or serenity, concentration and equanimity, are factors inside which are soothing, settling, calming, being. What allows them to be adjusted and stay balancing is mindfulness, which is that fulcrum, as he said. The thing in the middle, when we are mindful of these things, we are able to have them balance each other out. It's mindfulness that does the balancing. If we're not mindful, then there's no balancing. The change that fascinates me the most is where the culmination of the energizing three, joy, takes us into serenity. And how does that work? before I go that way. Interest, the keep on going, willingness, enthusiasm, and the, the sense of rightness and confidence and, and fascination that is PT, that whole piece, are wholesome. They're all wholesome. They're factors leading to freedom, so that makes them wholesome. However, Anything wholesome can become too much of a good thing and then become unwholesome. It's a very good thing to understand that it isn't as though wanting, for example, is unwholesome, period. It has the character of being unwholesome. Wanting is often very wholesome. That intention to be here, the inspiration, the things that lead us on, that we want to be more free, We need wanting. It's a wholesome, wholesome thing. But when we have too much wanting, it becomes a hindrance to waking up. And it goes just over a line at some point and come back again. It's always moving. Of course, everything's always moving. When wanting moves from being uh, fueling our enthusiasm to becoming a problem too much, how we experience that, as you know, is we... Instead of just feeling inspired and nourished and directed, we go a little too far where we have to have it. We lose that independent balance and we depend on the result of the object of our wanting. And when we need it, we're in trouble. We're no longer stable. We're no longer independent. We are now actually at the mercy of the thing. Because if we get it, we're then happy. And if we don't, we're unhappy and we're blaming and frustrated and therefore obviously reactive and obviously not free at all. Wanting is fine as long as it's not so significant that we're attached to it. 
That's a very fine thing. How to want something but not really? (laughs) Or how to want it without clinging is the elegance that we learn in meditation. It's not that no wanting applies here and we don't ever care about anything. We're just completely numbed out. But we, we want only so far as it helps us and doesn't drag us, doesn't make us lean without attachment. And similarly, the three factors which are, well, what that means is when there's too much of any of those factors and we get overstimulated, we are now in a state that's not free, that's not balanced, and that means we are hindered. That's a hindrance is there. Well, the hindrance from too much energy is agitation, isn't it, and restlessness. That's not like another list, a separate thing somewhere else. That's right here. When there's too much of anything, it means there's a hindrance, there's a struggle. And that particular hindrance of lots of energy is that one. Restless, squirmy, can't settle, gets too stimulated, excited. Piti, that factor of joy, as you've heard, it can really bring a lot of energy. It can be a lot of buzz. It can be thrilling. People can feel like, wow, this is fantastic. This is great. But what happens is we then can fall into the wanting it, depending on it. I think I said to you in this retreat, I say it often, so maybe I did, but maybe I didn't. Steve Armstrong has this little saying, there's nothing like a good sit to ruin your whole day. <laughs> and a good sit, could, you could easily think it's good when there's lots of rapture. Right? Oh, this is groovy. And it ruins things because we're dependent on it if we get attached. And therefore, when it's not there, it's, oh no. So the energizing factors are wholesome until they're too much of a good thing when they stir us up too much, out of balance. Then we have the soothing factors, pasadi, samadhi, equanimity. No, I still have more to say about the energizing ones. These energizing ones are not just stimulating and energizing. They are much more active, and particularly the first and the second, the very first being mindfulness. I sort of skip over that, but the first of the three energizing ones, interest and energy, they are doing. We do them. We do, we actually deliberately are curious, we ask questions. What's happening now? What does this feel like? Where can I recognize this emotion? We're active. We're looking deliberately. We're directing. Virya means effort, energy, enthusiasm. It's the the active application of our energy to keep going, to keep saying, okay, just this moment, just this minute, little more, step by step, that encouraging voice. That's the active doer. But those are only two with mindfulness, which we're, of course, always training in. The uh, pity, the rapture that comes, it just comes. We don't do it. And sometimes, because there's such a range of experience in rapture, we'd rather it didn't do it. We'd like it to do it less. We aren't able to control that. That's a result. It's a fruit. And from now on, these factors come in their own time, in their own maturing. We can't do them. So now we'll go to the soothing ones or the 
more passive ones, serenity, pasadi. Serene. I love that word. It's onomatopoeic to me, serene. I think of something like a swan gliding on very, you know, cool, calm lake or something. Graceful, smooth, effortless. When we're in that state of serenity, tranquility, calm, these are all words, we don't feel disturbed. You've heard a fair bit about these lovely qualities. Somebody who was talking to me in the last couple of days was describing a a state like this in which, I don't even remember if it was a woman or a man, one of you said, um, talking about whether to stand up or move or move the body or deal with an itch or whatever. And uh, whoever it was of you said, I just couldn't be bothered. Meaning, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Before that, when we're not so serene, everything matters. You know, I've got to do this and this isn't okay. And the thoughts we have are so loud and and, um, convincing. When we're, when we're serene, it's as though the thoughts are just little whispers. They're there. Sometimes they're there. Sometimes they can subside. Sometimes they can be very, very quiet. Sometimes there are big gaps between them at this stage of practice. But they aren't convincing. Our, our calm is greater. And so we don't get run around and pushed around and pulled around by them. We can retain the steadiness even though the mind does its little number. It's like the power of the mind over uh, dragging us through life, which it really does the rest of the time, is very reduced. Our stability is, is large, trustworthy. Oh, I have to say something else about PT. I know we've heard lots of us say lots of things about it, but one of the things about PT, which is why, even though we aren't doing PT, it's happening to us, but how it manifests in us as um, energy is um, it's absolutely fascinating. And I'll tell you that you give us, when you come to talk with us about what's happening in your practice, incredibly detailed descriptions of it far more detailed than many other parts of your experience because it's so stimulating. It's interesting. That is the degree of interest that's growing in you. That factor develops that precise, you're really focused on it because it's very interesting. Even if it's not particularly pleasant, which it isn't for some people, you're very clear about it because it's strong. Your energy is brought up by that experience. You can see how that works in you. We can see how it works in you. Hmm. Pasadi. And then concentration, collectedness. The mind, when concentrated, is now like the well-trained. I always think of the border collies, you know, and you see all the incredible sheep trials and how well-behaved those dogs are. and How just they just do, just a little tiny whistle and they will do whatever you want them to do. The mind becomes like that, your own friend, rather than this 
this crazy boss. And then equanimity. You'll hear more detail of these with other people talking about them, but when you put these three together, it's a soothing, settling, resting, relaxing aspect of practice. When there's a lot of the other and we feel that we're then restless or agitated or overstimulated in some way, if there's too much efforting, virya, that one, that's when grimness comes from and tightness or striving. When we get stimulated with um, piti, rapture, it can so easily become this thing that we long for or try to get back or measure our other, the rest of our day, you know, that, that's got ruined by it. By We set it up as a standard. When any of these things are happening, what we need to be balanced is more of the others, is more of the peaceful, the releasing, the relaxing, the settling, the staying, the relaxing the body, softening the breath, so that they, they help each other. But when we have, we can have too much of the serenity too. When we have too much peace, too much ease, too much calm, in, out. It's like a lullaby. Because when you're relaxed, the breath is very even and very steady. For instance, or the heartbeat that you get to hear, it's just gentle because your system is now so, so uh, at peace that it's all settled. And by focusing on that settledness, it can settle us even more. And it's very wholesome for quite some time. But at some point, it's too much of a good thing too. And needless to say, you know what the hindrance then is. There's that sloth and torpor one, where you just kind of vaguely drift off. You may think, oh, this is lovely, oh, thank God. (laughs) But what happens is we get sort of entranced by that, soothed by that, a, a considerable degree is required because this poor, jumpy, nervy, anxious system really needs it. It's great. But when we're so soothed and lulled like a lullaby, we forget actually to notice what's happening. And if you're, for instance, using noting practice, which is a good time to do it, at least check it out, draw it in again, you'll discover you're going like out, in, when you're actually breathing, you know, in. (laughs) For instance, you know, it's like, you're sort of here, but not quite really here, not that clear. What's missing then is energy. We say obvious things at those times, like open your eyes or uh, change your focus, move your attention a little bit so it's, it's like, oh yeah, that's more interesting, you know, you're something else slightly different to stimulate you. Uh, breathe a little more deeply to bring your energy up, etc. And one of the things which I always recommend is just ask a few questions, like, like for instance, what's nice about this? Because they're not trying to change it or make it wrong, but actually there's a lot there that can be felt. Usually we feel extremely safe. Usually we're pretty comfortable. Often we're warm. You know, often we feel very friendly. We're happy. If we are anxious, we're way more alert. We don't need to be alert. No flight or fight happening. No adrenaline running. It's all very smooth. So we're actually feeling very, it's a very lovely feeling to be so comfortable. We can notice that. It's got features which are noticeable if you're curious enough. So what we need actually is a little more W, a little more of that factor of investigation. And so what 
how we do is we just ask a question. What's happening? How am I feeling? Or just even the note of naming it calm, calm, makes us notice that we're calm rather than be so lulled by it that we don't realize that's what's happening. Lost. That's calling up those other factors, those energizing ones, to bring us into balance. And it's the mindfulness, that fulcrum of mindfulness, the awareness, the knowing what's happening, that's the, the, the active part that says, oh yes, getting dull. I mean, sometimes it's not till your head nearly drops off that you realize, you know, we all know what that feels like, that wakes you up. So then go and be energized a little. Ask some questions. Move your attention through your body. Notice some different things. Stimulate yourself a little. When I was a young student, not that long ago actually, it was a few years ago, but for a long time in my practice, I had a, 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 an assumption. And the assumption was that if I worked hard, I'm a striver by the way, if I worked hard and was a good student and really, really tried to nail that white flapping bird down, as you've heard me say before, then I would become concentrated. I just somehow thought I wasn't familiar enough with these seven factors and I did this complete bypass of PT leading to paucity. I just ignored it completely and I just thought I can just push through. I didn't even bother to question that there were these very wise teachings explaining how it works and so I worked and worked and I became very concentrated but it was a very uphill kind of experience. somehow or other, actually I know how or other it happened, was that by trial and error and by just by the experience of being a meditator and seeing and seeing as we do, what became clear to me by accident over time was that um, I wasn't including my heart in all of that. I wasn't taught it initially anyway. It wasn't part of the focus. But that I wasn't doing that part. In fact, I was avoiding any mention of the heart and matter and I just couldn't relate. It just drove me the opposite way. I would get anxious and feel I can't do that part. I can't say those phrases. I don't mean them. I'm just, you know, I'm a hypocrite. I don't have any benefactors. I'd just go into all kinds of trouble. But as time went by and my understanding really my from meditation revealed to me that what I was so concerned about about myself and my stuff was actually ourselves and us stuff. My heart began to open and realize, you know, I was learning about humans from this particular point of view, but I wasn't so isolated or different. And my understanding of other people grew and my compassion grew and so on, because it does, naturally. But as that happened, I was able to more feel friendly. It was happening naturally, not by intent, but by the fruit of practice. And with that increasing uh, friendliness towards myself and towards people I encountered and whatever, more and more delight, 
then I started having increasing access to um, joy. I started to appreciate more. I've always loved the natural world and I've always lived in the country and I've been a gardener all my life, really. So there's been the same degree of pleasure, but somehow there would be more frequent great hits of joy that happened because my mind would be calm. And this was most obvious while on retreat because of the degree of serenity that comes from as you're doing. So one day, for example, and there are many examples that showed me the, the validity of this principle. One day, I'll tell you one such story. I was a, I like to practice in Gaia House, which is in Devon in England, because of the setting. You know, I'm so I grew up in that country. It was four o'clock in the afternoon, and it was early December, so it was you know winter time and the sun was setting at four o'clock in the afternoon in early December in England and uh, but it was a clear night clear afternoon it was dusk sunset and it so happened that it was the full moon day and uh, I was walking coming home from a walk across the fields they're rolling green fields and I came over a slight rise and uh, and it was it's dewy at that time of year even though it was a clear day it hadn't been raining and, uh, and these green fields, this particular field that I was entering, had lots of cattle in it, lots of dairy cows in it. I came over this slight rise, and as I got to a certain angle, there was the sun over there, right ahead of me, setting. And up behind me over here was the full moon rising. And th- such an angle that I reached as I walked that the sun, in its low in the sky, hit zillions zillions of cobwebs on the grass and the, all of the whole field shone gold it was a shine it was just like the moon on water it was completely shining it was breathtaking the whole thing was exquisite with the moon and the cows and the green fields and everything but and there's a church rising out of the mist i mean it's very you know bucolic is the word which sounds a dreadful word for that description but anyway <laughs> And as I looked closely at this extraordinary sight, I realized that the sun, because my eyes were quiet enough, was shining on only the cobwebs which were horizontal to the sun. There were millions of other cobwebs, but the sun wasn't catching them. This entire field was netted with cobwebs. But there were cows in the field walking around munching the grass. So how many spiders must there have been in that field to, in a short period of time since the last cow happened to walk by that area, cover it with cobwebs? It was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. I was so ecstatic. I came home. I had a cup of tea. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. All good English people have their tea. And then I sat, and my mind was so refreshed and nourished and delighted by the beauty that my whole mind went so quiet. So pasadi, so serene. The fuel of that was the delight. It was the reassurance that allowed my heart to totally trust, to totally feel safe, to totally relax. I've had numbers of experiences, that's just one example. The peace that I discovered that I didn't know was pushing from virya to samadhi is not the only way, and that's a very hard, harsh way. It takes a long time. It's frustrating. It's a big setup for much judgment en route. But when it's through golden cobwebs in fields, it's just like a piece of cake. 
It was just like, whew. And again and again, I've known that when we, our hearts are glad, they trust, they relax. But when they're not, we're anxious, we're nervy, we're jumpy, we don't trust. We're insecure, we're going to die sometime, we don't know when. We're supposed to watch out and try and keep it all together, and it isn't all together, and all of the things I've been talking about previously. What we need then to allow that shift to take place from the doer who's trying to keep it together and be good to the let go, the passivity of the non-doing of the being is a heart that's glad, a heart that's reassured. And this is why we talk about metta and we talk about forgiveness and we talk about gratitude and blessings and we talk about beauty and we talk about nature and all the various qualities. We talk about reflecting on our own goodness. Anything and everything which serves to soften and reassure this heart that otherwise just can't let go because it doesn't trust. When we don't trust, we're in the hindrance, we're living under the thrall of the hindrance doubt. And it's so pervasive. It's how we live. It's the ego living trying to make it better. Do you remember that poem I read you? Um, Jealousy and almost all of our suffering comes from believing we know better than God. That Hafiz poem. That's what doubt is. We don't trust God. It's not okay, so I have to something. In the moment that I'm reassured that cobwebs are beautiful, or whatever it is, there's no need for me to do anything. There's no doubt everything is okay in that moment. And then the heart relaxes and then the mind can go quiet. We can't make the mind go quiet if the heart is not soothed. We need love. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Earth laughs in flowers. Why do we all go to nature when we need nourishment? We all know this is true. Blaise Pascal, French philosopher, said, uh, when you are suffering, put something beautiful in your heart. What do you think this altar is at the back here? It's just full of beauty. It's soothing. We need it. It's not the official altar, but it's loaded, isn't it? It's a juicy altar. It's, it's really what nourishes us so much. It's a beautiful thing, that Kuan Yin, and all those pictures of beloved people and things. So sukha, sukha, in these 12 links of transcendental dependent arising, what a mouthful, um, follows calm, pasadi, sukha. We've talked about joy and pity and rapture and excitement and tingling and pervasive and showering experiences. You've heard plenty of those. Sukha is much lower key. It's much more, when we're in that aspect of practice, it's, um, it's more passive. 
it's much more understated, but it's it's like a food. It's I think of I mean sucrets. I think of you know sugar. It's it's sweet. It's food. It's not stimulus. Um, the deep inner part of ourselves, which has spent so much of our lives desperately trying to get it together and keep it together, which is actually exhausted, is nourished here. It's like, oh. And we know we've always wanted that degree of rest. We think that we'll find it on the beach or, you know, in the resort or whatever, after the next thrilling, whatever it is we think we want. It isn't the thrill we want, it's the feeling of relief. And here is this feeling of deep, deep relief, deep, deep quiet. It's so nourishing to the spirit. We know we've always hungered after this. When we feel this nourishment that comes from it, that thing we've always needed, that feeling that we've always needed something is the first ennobling truth. That is dukkha, that feeling of just something else, just the next moment. This counteracts that. It's like the dukkha or sukha. When we have this experience of sukha, we are satisfied. We are living with, with satisfaction. It's the absence of dukkha. It's like, yes. The insight that we gain from this kind of experience is profound. The kind of insight we gain from this is that, you know what? Everything else is a cheap thrill. Everything is a substitute for this. This is really what we're wanting. This feeling of deep, deep satisfaction, relief. And then we, without having to, we, we don't actually want to go and see yet another movie, you know, or buy yet another pretty dress. Now, we know that new cars don't, they're okay, I mean, you know, but they deeply don't provide the thing that we know we really want because we've now tasted what we really were looking for. So this changes our whole relationship with the world. We don't need it the same way we always needed it. We don't chasing it the same way. There are some, here are just interesting, some definitions that some different scholars, Buddhist scholars, have, de- have used in describing. So here's sukha. Blessed, happy, pleasant, easy. Seated peacefully, comfortable. be at ease. You know those wishes that we sing sometimes when we're doing the uh, metta chant? That's what we're saying. We're really wishing that people know this degree of peacefulness inside. When we are able to live with that kind of peacefulness inside, we can't fight with people. That's how it works in the world. It isn't that we then have that experience and we go out into the world and we forget it. We don't live with that same degree of serenity. We can't because we're so stimulated, but we know really well the insights that come from it.
Well, that too, of course, is, has a danger. Anything can become a hindrance. And a hindrance can at any time become something that we learn and are aware of, and then it's no longer a hindrance. But with even that deep degree of sweetness, the danger, of course, is that it's so delicious that we want it. You know, and so then it can set up striving if we forget that we're strivers. You know, we have to be really wary. What's beautiful and helpful can easily go into the territory then of, of uh, tr- tricking us. Ledi Sayadaw is a Sayadaw from uh, Burma who lived in the late 1800s, a scholar as well as a practitioner. He said this, If the pleasure and joy experienced in Vipassana happiness, Sukha, which is complete with these seven factors that I'm describing, were to be divided into 256 parts. One single part of that joy and pleasure exceeds the worldly joys and pleasures of kings among humans, devas and brahmas. So great is the joy and pleasure inherent in these factors of awakening. He wasn't talking theory either, this guy. He was a practitioner, deep practitioner. And the most amazing thing is it isn't somewhere else to go out and hunt for. It's here when we let go of all of that doing. It's already here. We rest in it. So just a couple of other things then to say about this, um, the balancing really of the doing and the being. Our practice becomes an ever more um, sophisticated or elegant balancing act. And I've told some of you this, some of you know this, there was a woman, I believe she lived in Seattle for some reason, I don't know why I think that. Anyway, there was a woman once who decided, American obviously, contemporary person. She wanted to be a tightrope walker. And what she decided to do was to make the rope, first of all. So she learned how to make rope, and she bought the jute and spun it and twisted it and made the rope, laid the rope on the floor, and began walking on the rope, and little by little tightened the rope and lifted it and lifted it and lifted it until she could walk on it one inch, two inches, a foot, ten feet off the ground. Which is just an interesting piece of information which really isn't very relevant to what I'm going to say now, but anyway... She said, in describing her whole journey in this, she said, there is no such thing as balanced. There is only always balancing. What happens, though, is we develop this skill as our minds become more trained and we get to see when we're energized, when we're, when we're agitated, when we're calm, when we're falling off into sloth and torpor, when we're, when we're being mean, when we're reassured, what works to reassure us, all of that is um, we're able to adjust more and more spontaneously. The mindfulness itself, this ability to see clearly, is what, what it shows is when we're out of balance. We learn by being out of balance. And initially we're like so out of balance that we're really crashed and lost for a long time rolling in some great drama. And then we realize. But as we get more skilled, then this... Uh, understanding of when we're losing a sense of stability and a hindrance is coming 
is recognized sooner and sooner. It just becomes a finer thing. And so the lag between what's happening and our realizing it shortens and shortens. Initially, it's after quite some time, and later it's lesser. And it, at times, the mind is so rarefied and subtle that we can notice when it's about to happen. We can even notice when a thought's about to come up. I know a number of you here are able to do this. You know, your minds are sufficiently quiet. There's resting quiet, and it's about to think something. Or about to any such thing. The thing about this getting more skilled it actually gets more fun. It's a joy to become skilled at anything, isn't it? Like when we learn something, when we can't do it, we doubt ourselves and it's a struggle and, oh, I'm never going to be able to and I'm so clumsy or whatever we do. You know, it's a lot of work and we strain and hold our breath unnecessarily or grip our, you know, white knuckle it, whatever we're learning. As we learn more, it becomes there isn't the wasted energy getting in knots about it. That all dissipates, so it gets more comfortable, more relaxing, but it gets more pleasurable. And the same thing is true with the mind, exactly the same. And so there's increasing delight. It isn't just that we're saying, here are these stages that someday you will experience. As we sit here, there is increasing ease. Not constantly, none of things are constantly, but we're all able to discover, oh yeah, look at this, see how it works. So I think this is um, an important piece to keep in mind as we practice. Enjoy it. I know we say enjoy and you kind of go like, yeah, yeah, and roll your eyes. But actually, some of you maybe, (laughs) as we, as as this whole thing takes over in us and the doer recedes and the being, being aware, takes over, we like it. I even say this to people when I'm doing my first initial um, classes in, in a Vipassana meditation. I, I say, I've got to warn you, that's an addiction. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's, it's pleasant to even have a few little moments of not being so caught in struggle. And as those moments grow and we're less and less caught for less and less long, obviously it's it's more pleasant. The luxury I really understand of long retreat, when we have these days and days and days, we're not having to watch the clock and count the days, is we have the time to explore and to learn. And how we learn is by trial and error. We learn by doing something and watching and seeing what happens and seeing when that leads to more of a sense of ease, when that leads into a dullness or when that leads into some story gets stimulated. We can watch this refining process happening right under our gaze. So it's kind of like we're playing. I know we, some people think, of, oh, I'm going on another boot camp. And initially it is more like that. It's harder to do. But it gets to be more like this is... It's playing. It, there's a, there's a, oh, an aspect, and that don't mean in any way to trivialize it. But we can explore, we can, we can become intrigued. How does this work? How does this lead to this? Look how this leads to that. We have the luxury of the time to do this. It's a beautiful thing. We can experiment.
And then finally, in a way of review, but really it comes down to this, certainly in my practice, and I'm talking about you know all of my practice, but when I'm in retreat and looking really closely and having the time to really get aware of what's going on, what's going on are, are the interplay of these three aspects of meditation, the doing, the reassuring, and the letting go. So the doing, of course, is the, the concentration, the deliberate focus, the directing, the vitaka vichara, the connecting the mind with whatever I'm aiming it and sustaining it there. And deliberately, I'm going to just do this, do this, do this. Whatever, to whatever degree, samadhi, right through dhyana degree. And sometimes, and usually for me, then after some of that, I then bring in the heart. But sometimes I, the heart's along with it, and sometimes the heart goes first. doesn't matter. But one or the other of those two both need to be developed, so there'll be some gratitude or some looking at beauty or some metta, some taking of refuge, some appreciation or another. So there's the heart, and there's the, there's the gathered mind, and there's the, there's the tender heart. And then at some point, with both those there, there's this letting go. There's the letting go of me, doing it right, having to stay. There's trust. There's ease. The mind can open. Awareness is here. Different things come and go. Choiceless awareness. And it's, that's, the, that's the non-doing. That's the just being free in those moments, at ease. But, of course, it's a balancing act. There's always balancing. And sooner or later, there's like lullaby land. And there's like, or it becomes kind of ordinary and sort of ho-hummish. And so then there'll be some regeneration, either some more loving kindness of some form or some more focused doing practice. And then a letting go of that again. And we simply learn by exploring and playing when this system can be trusted to relax and let go and open without getting all lost and confused. And when it's more lost or vague or just sort of dissipated, when it needs to be held together a little. And around we go. And none is better than any other. None is right. They're the factors of awakening. Some teaching, some student was with, a, I believe, a Roshi, Japanese teacher, who was giving teachings. And the student was like, received the teachings and thought about them and said, that sounds, yeah. And then, then puzzled and said, well, how, how do I make this my own, your teaching? How do I, you know, integrate that? And the teacher said, through experience. And the student was like, right. And then the student was like, and how do I become experienced? And the teacher says, through your good judgment. And the student goes, and how do I get good judgment? And the teacher says, through bad judgment. (laughs) (laughs) So we can. That's how we learn. This is too much. This is not enough. This is... It's your practice that teaches you. We We just express what we understand in the ways we do to encourage you that you'll keep it, keep you on. Yes, yes, you're going right. But it's your own experiences where you learn. It's not theory, any of this. Tenzin Palmo, she's the English woman who um, 
wrote The Cave in the Snow, you know, a woman who lived in the, in the Himalayan cave for 12 years. She says, this is what she says about renunciation. The reason we're not enlightened is because we're lazy. There's no other reason. She doesn't mince her words, this English woman. We do not bother to bring ourselves back to the present because we're too fascinated by the games the mind is playing. If one genuinely thinks about renunciation, it's not a giving up of external things like money, leaving home, or one's family. That's easy. Genuine renunciation is giving up our fond thoughts, all our delight in memories, hopes, daydreams, our mental chatter. To renounce that and stay naked in the present, that's renunciation. And then I'll end with this quote. Um, so, so it's a story of um, the uh, Milarepa and the Gampupa. After years of solitary meditation in a cave, interspersed with visits to Milarepa, Gampupa finally completed, completed his training and was ready to leave his master. Milarepa, who was now old, placed both bare feet upon Gampopa's head as a benediction. Gampopa asked the singing yogi for final instructions. Milarepa, however, simply said, what is needed is more effort, not more teachings. And he would say no more. Gampopa set off and had already crossed a narrow stream when Milarepa shouted to attract his attention one last time. The guru knew that he wouldn't see Gampopa again during this lifetime. I have one very profound secret instruction, he said. It's far too precious to give away to just anyone. Kampopa looked back. Milarepa suddenly turned around, bent over, and pulled up his ragged robe, displaying buttocks as calloused and pockmarked as a horse's hoof, hardened from so many long years of seated meditation on bare rock. That's my final instruction, (laughs) he said. Do it. Let's just do it for a couple of minutes. I would also say, let's just be it. Thank you for your attention. I hope it's helpful.